confidence in what we have been singing about. Matthew chapter 28, we'll be reading verses 16 through 20. <clears throat> Hear the inerrant word of Almighty God. And the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Father, we come before you uh, rejoicing that we have your word, uh, your sure promise. Uh, it is our anchor. It is our uh, foundation. It is the thing that gives joy and gives hope, gives healing. It gives rebuke. And Father, I pray that whatever is needed in our lives, that by your Spirit you would take this word, quicken it to our lives, and enable us to be sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth. Father, anoint me and enable me to faithfully preach your word. And I pray each one of us would delight in it and follow it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When we were in Tennessee, um, a week ago Wednesday at the Keegan's house, we were watching an old, old movie called uh, Marty Marrer, and I was probably persecuting my children by making them watch the movie. I don't know how much they liked it, but it really was a heartwarming movie about the 50 years of service that Marty Marrer had in uh, training the cadets at West Point uh, Academy. And when I looked at that movie, I said, man, that's a different world. <laughs> the values have changed. There's so many things that have changed since then. And one of the uh, people that were graduates in that movie was uh, Douglas MacArthur, and he shared those values and kind of was out of step with his times. But uh, this past Monday, I read his 1962 farewell speech after many years of distinguished service. Actually, he was fired by Truman because I think he was standing by principle, and I think it was a principle that that uh, 62 farewell uh, speech uh, really portrayed so well. Anyway, here is a statement that he made to those cadets in that speech. He said, Yours is the profession of arms, the will to win, the sure knowledge that in war there is no substitute for victory. And I love that phrase. There is no substitute for victory. And it makes sense. If you're not winning, the enemy's winning, right? <laughs> How do you just hold a line? If you're not winning, the enemy is winning. How do you fight a battle or how do you fight a war with the goal of not to win, just to hold your own? Or to use another metaphor, how do you study for an exam to get a C? I've had people say, oh, they're not going to study that long. All they care about is getting a C. I was always wondering, well, what if all of the questions that I don't know are on the exam and I'll get an F instead of a C? You know, how do you study for a C? You know, there is no substitute for going whole hog. And yet, I think President Truman did not share uh, Douglas MacArthur's uh, views on, on that. He did not want to win the war. And when MacArthur insisted that such a war was immoral and that we must fight to win, uh, he re was relieved of his command. And I think it was after the Inchon uh, event. Some of you older people might know better than me on that. But Truman just wanted to hold the line, and I think that was one of the things that made the Korean War and the Vietnam War so discouraging. Now, I think that there is a parallel between the strategy that President Truman had and the strategy that many Christians have nowadays. Uh, they do not see the Great Commission as a 
as a call to complete and comprehensive conquest. They see it as a holding pattern from which the church maybe will get bailed out at some time in the future. Troops will be drawn out of our, our own Vietnam or our own Korea. And uh, they do not see it as a call for con- conquest. And some do not even see it as a comprehensive call to sanctification in our own lives. I've told you in the past about my father being frustrated with, with uh, some of the missionaries who uh, have bought into this modern uh, uh, cross-cultural um, uh, a cultural sensitivity type of, uh, uh, of arguments, and we're not willing to take on demonic strongholds in the culture, things like uh, female circumcision and other things like that. You know, when, the, when missions goes into a culture, you need to see culture change. If individual lives are changed, you're going to begin to see the culture itself changing. You should see differences on their expressions of their faces. You should see uh, naked people becoming clothed. You should see hygiene and cleanliness. Uh, there, there should be so many areas of change in their lives, differences in the way in which husbands and wives relate to each other. And so I think sanctification and comprehensive change in an individual life as well as a cultural life is implied uh, in in this uh, Great Commission, but not everybody uh, thinks that way. Uh, One writer likened the Great Commission to a massive chain uh, chain mail letter that promises a reward, and I assume he's talking about getting raptured to heaven, promises a reward when every person in the world has received this chain letter. And uh, uh, even though Jack Hiles does not use the chain mail image, I think he would agree this is all that the Commission calls us to do. And let me quote him. He's a very well-meaning man. And yet I think uh, he's mistaken in this, and he's representative of many in that. Let me pause to say, first of all, I'm very thankful for men like him who are engaged in evangelism. And I would much rather have one person who does not believe in the greatness of the Great Commission that we're going to be giving an exposition of, who's involved in evangelism, than ten people who believe in the greatness of the Great Commission and aren't not lifting a finger for evangelism, okay? So that having been said, I don't think we have to make a choice. We do need to be involved. But let me read... Uh, a quotation, and this is, many people hold to this view of the commission. He says, notice the four basic verbs. First, go. Second, preach. Third, baptize. And four, teach them again. You teach them something after you get them saved and baptized. What do you teach them? To observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Now, what did he command us to do? Go, preach, baptize, then teach what he commanded us to do. So we teach them to go, preach, and baptize, that they may teach their converts to go and preach and baptize. I hope you'll see by the end of the sermon that the Great Commission is far more comprehensive uh, than this. It is not simply winning souls, even though winning souls is an absolute essential step in the process. It's a very important step that we must all be engaged in. Now, we have been preaching through, I've taken a break from this foundation series, but we've been preaching through some of the foundational issues that make our church uh, different, unique, but especially because there were periods of history when we would have just been common, you know, it wouldn't have been anything unique, but which drive us, which give us enthusiasm, which make us excited about the things that we are doing. And I would have to say that this passage and the greatness of the Great Commission is one of those foundation issues that uh, is just characteristic of our church and gives us enthusiasm. We hold to the old-fashioned view that this is much more than a chain letter. This is a call that even goes beyond comprehensive individual sanctification. It is a call to total conquest 
and the total Christianization of the world, of every nation. And I think that is the, that is the, the thing that inflames our hope and encourages us, even when it looks like uh, the enemy is going to overwhelm us. It looks like the odds are against us because we have a leader who is committed to win. He's not going to bail out the troops before the war is done. He's not going to leave POWs behind. He's not going to be like that fictitious president in Patriot Games. I don't know if any of you read that book or saw the movie. That was another movie we saw on vacation. Boy, it made me mad to see that, that president, you know, that uh, he was going to deliberately allow these people to be massacred. Uh, but it's not that. And so this sermon, I'm hoping, is going to stir up and encourage you in terms of the comprehensiveness of what the church is called to. Now, first of all, I want to give you some background information. And I'm only going to barely touch on Roman numeral one. And the reason I'm not going to go into that in depth is there's an entire book that you ought to have in your bookshelves by Ken Gentry called The Greatness of the Great Commission. And he deals with those five points. I think it's a, a, a wonderful a wonderful book but i think seeing the covenant structure of this passage here helps you to see hey there's there's more to it than just a chain letter this is something that christ is giving as a pattern of life this is something that every one of us is subject to uh, we are under this covenant uh, this is something that is designed to transform uh, our lives <coughs> but anyway let me just take five minutes I don't know, you can maybe take a stopwatch and see if it'll be five minutes, but I want to cover these five points very quickly in what uh, Ken Gentry takes 164 pages to cover. There's a lot of things I won't deal with, like the analogy between Moses on the mountain and Christ on the mountain here. There's a lot of neat things he, he pulls together, but let's quickly go through. Every covenant in the Bible can be summed up in the five bold statements in your outline there. Uh, the covenant uh, always begins by showing the transcendence of the one who is making the covenant. It then establishes a hierarchy uh, of, a, of a authority structure. It then provides a covenant oath, and that can be either a sacrifice or a meal or uh, some kind of an oath. In this case, it's baptism. Uh, it then uh, uh, speaks of the laws or the expectations that God has, and then finally it speaks of what will happen in the future, and especially in future generations. Now, uh, I've tried to even simplify those black words there because there are more technical words that are used in the literature. But Gary North, as he likes to do, tries to make things real simple with questions, and so I've put those to the side. And he says the transcendence part is simply answering the question, who's in charge of this joint? Okay? Even in pagan covenants, suzerainty treaties, there was a preamble where the king would describe himself and the fact that he was the guy that was in charge he was the one that imposed the covenant on the vassal kings that he had, that he had conquered. <coughs> the second part of the covenant, the hierarchy part, answers the question, to whom do I report? Everybody is accountable. Everybody in the world is accountable or should be accountable uh, to, to someone. Jesus is given all authority in heaven and on earth, which implies that he's accountable to the Father. He reports to the Father. Jesus also gives authority to his apostles, which imply that they are accountable and must report to Jesus. And those who are baptized need to be accountable to those who are authoritatively discipling them. And uh, every, uh, every covenant has this authority structure in it. And basically there are three structures. There's the family, the church, and the state. And there's, there's a, a chain of command in those. The third part of a covenant is called a covenant oath. Uh, 
And baptism is the oath that places believers and their seed under the protection uh, and the authority of the covenant. But it is a promise. It's a vow. And I think first and foremost, it's a vow that God makes to us. He vows himself to be a God to us and to our children after us. But we vow to trust him, to follow after him. Uh, Otherwise, the covenant curse comes into effect. And always when there's an oath, there's the blessing side and there's the curse side uh, that, that, that comes into it. And the interesting thing here is how comprehensive that oath he anticipates will be. It'll be over the nations. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's not going to be a holy huddle. His goal is to take on the world. Now, the fourth area of a covenant is stipulations. And Gary North sums up that with the question, what are the rules of this outfit? Uh, Every covenant has rules or expectations. And Jesus gives his expectation, we're going to be obeying and teaching everything that he's commanded. We'll look at that in a bit. The last section of any covenant is called covenant succession. And he summarizes that part of any Old Testament covenant with the questions, does this outfit have a future? And of course, Christ (laughs) gives the encouraging words, it does have the future. He's going to be with us always. Okay, he's not going to do a Patriot Games abandonment. He's not going to leave POWs behind. He's not going to pull out before the war is done. He's going to ensure that his plan is finished until the end of the age. And so that's Christ's war plan in a nutshell. Or if you want to change analogies, that's analogies. That's his business plan. And it may may seem like an idealistic, unrealistic plan uh, when when you look at it. And I think they would have thought it was crazy back then, too, when they were given that command. We 11, we're going to be taking over the world? (laughs) I mean, that just seems unbelievable, too hard uh, to believe. Now, Gary North wrote a marvelous book called Backward Christian Soldiers. And in that, he tries to help Christians get over some of the hang-ups that have caused Christians, instead of doing like former generations did, trying to take on Uh, our culture and transform it for King Jesus we've retreated from culture and uh, we've given up the the hospitals and the universities and no longer have plans for making Christian cities and things like that but in that book he gives an illustration of a business plan he says most people want to know how to invest their money what would you think about the following investment I found a brand new company that needs financing it's operated by inexperienced managers who have never been in management positions before has very small budget, has no government grants of any kind. In fact, the government has already convicted the president of the company for making fraudulent claims. There are no college graduates employed by the company. All the major institutions of higher learning teach a totally different management program and refuse to recognize this firm's techniques as valid. So far, it doesn't sound too promising. But let me add a few more observations. The firm's product line has been deliberately designed to be out of fashion with the buying public's taste. It has no advertising budget. The recently recruited sales force is expected to do door-to-door marketing, and they've had no experience in this field. The only experience in direct marketing that the managers had was regional over the last three years, and the firm suffered tremendous sales resistance in this market. Nevertheless, the firm is determined to go international. Would you invest in this company? More to the point, would you put everything you own into the company? But I forgot to tell you something. The firm's president is no longer being held by the government. He is now in conference with the chief executive officer who happens to be his father and who is the developer of the most brilliant sales and recruiting package the world has ever seen. Not only that, the developer of the program has made sales projection figures 
that are comprehensive and which in the past have always proven accurate. He says that the company will eventually dominate the world market. Now, would you invest in the company? Maybe if you believed in the developer and his son. And what I want to encourage you to, with this morning is to believe the, the business plan that the developer and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, have put be, before us. This is a business plan that is not hopelessly idealistic, uh, not at all. Uh, he just sees things that many of us don't. In fact, that's one of the signs of a good leader, isn't it? A good leader many times uh, knows that he ne needs to make changes before anybody else sees a reason for the change. He can anticipate problems. He anticipates market penetration, especially if he's a good businessman, before others get there in terms of the competition. And that's what Jesus does. Knowing the end from the beginning, more foresight than any businessman has, he has given a marketing plan that if we follow, we'll be successful. And I, what I want to do in the remainder of the sermon is I want to look at four alls in this passage, A-L-L, four times that the word A-L-L uh, comes in this passage. And if we gut this passage of those four alls, we have gutted it of its power, of its hope, and of its encouragement. All it becomes is a mongo chain letter. These alls are very, very important. The first neglected all in the Great Commission is all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not all authority will be given to me, but has been given to me. Not all authority has been given to me in heaven and some authority has been given to me on earth. There are no exceptions to the comprehensive claims of his authority. This means all authority in heaven Okay, that means all the angels of heaven, all of the saints who are in heaven are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father has said they are at the discretion of Jesus to do with as he wants. All authority in, uh, in the, the, the powers of the, of the air. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, last three verses indicates that Jesus was not only exalted above all principal demonic principalities and powers, but that all of these powers were put under his feet, were given to Christ, but were put under him, and he was given uh, to the church. So Satan, who tried to offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world before his crucifixion, afterwards he knows he's in trouble because the Father has authorized Jesus to wrest those kingdoms from Satan. Uh, Jesus has been granted the power of life and death. He gives life, he takes away life. He has the power to judge. In John 5, he says, For the Father judges no one. Now, that's a very interesting term there. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Okay? He's not referring there to his, his deity. He's referring to his humanity. Because he is the Son of Man, he is the God-man, he is the mediator. That is why... He has been given all judgment. The Father judges nothing. He does it everything through the Son. Now, if Jesus has been given all authority on earth, I think it behooves us to examine what kind of delegated authorities there are on the earth. One of the authority structures is the family. Jesus claims to have all authority in the family. That means we cannot run our families just any way that we please. We need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him, Lord, how is it that you want me to run my family? We need to make sure pride does not get in the way. We need to look to him because his authority cannot be questioned. Now, the encouraging thing to me about this is if he has all authority, that means he also has responsibility. 
Because in the Bible, authority and responsibility always go hand in hand. And if he's got responsibility, that means he is very interested in making sure your family ought to be, uh, will be what it ought to be. Uh, he's very motivated to cause your family to grow. And so when you are discouraged over things that seem like impossibilities, go to the one who has authority in your family and say, Lord, I need your help. I am one under authority and I'm seeking help from above. And he is motivated because he is the one, what Isaiah says, the Christ child, upon his government will rest, uh, upon his shoulder will rest the government and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He doesn't instantly sanctify us, does he? It's gradual over time. He doesn't instantly turn our families around. It's gradual over time. And that's the way he works uh, all, all of the time. And so he is very interested and motivated in your family to cause you to increase in his government, to cause you to increase in his peace in your family. So it's not only a challenge. To me, it's an encouragement as well. Well, another authority is the church authority. And Christ claims all authority in the church over church membership, discipline, worship, outreach, whatever. Now, that means when we as a church try to do something new, we need to be asking, where in the Bible are we authorized to do this thing? It's not enough to say, this is a good thing to do. It's not enough to look at the results and say, look at the fantastic results of what we're doing. We need to say, where is it authorized in the Bible? Because there are some good things that God has only authorized the state to do. There are some good things that God has only authorized the family to do. God has given three institutions, and they all have separate jurisdictions, family, church, and state. And when any one of those governments oversteps what their jurisdiction is and begins to do what the others do, they are rebelling against the authority of Christ because they're not in the place that Christ has put them. And we already gave a sermon on how it is that uh, the church many times oversteps its boundaries and takes away from the jurisdiction of the family and the family begins to just meld they don't have their unique distinctions but those are three areas we need to think about but i think it's especially the civil government that many christians exempt from christ's authority they say yes we need god's word in the family we need god's word in the church but you know we need pluralism in the state and it, it never ceases to astonish me that people, Christians, so vigorously oppose the notion of a Christian state. Uh, the early American experiment with a Christian nation in our country and Christian laws is something that appalls many Christians today. But it ought not. It ought not to be something that is shocking. In um, 1 Timothy... 6 verse 15 it says that jesus is the only potentate some translate that sovereign and he is the king of kings and lord of lords well if he's the king of kings that means he's got authority over all kings if he's got all authority on the earth that means he's got the authority to tell president bush what to do or to tell the congress or the courts or any other king what to do they must be subject to the scriptures psalm 2 calls upon nations to kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in his wrath it says, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That was a psalm, by the way, that the early church in Acts used against Pilate and against the Jewish leaders. And God did indeed bring judgment against both uh, Israel as well as against uh, Rome. Pluralism means sharing of authority with other religions and other viewpoints. And Jesus refuses to share his authority. He claims all authority 
in heaven and on earth. Now, what I want you to do, I want you to turn with me to Luke 23. I'm just going to look at a few scriptures that use that term exousia so you get a little bit of a flavor of the nuances that are involved in the, in the Greek term. Now, Luke 23 and verse 7 is a very interesting passage because it completely reverses what Matthew 28, verse 18 says about Jesus. Here's a passage where it says that Jesus is under the exousia. He is under the authority of Herod. Just as Jesus submitted to parental authority in Luke 2, he submits to Herod's authority. So uh, let's read this, Luke 23, verse 7. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. And the word jurisdiction is exousia. Herod ruled over citizen Jesus. And Luke says that Jesus belonged to Herod's exousia authority or jurisdiction now matthew 28 reverses that says he's no longer under herod's exousia jesus now herod's now under jesus's exousia turn to john 19 this is one that looks at uh, pilate <coughs> and uh, the authority that pilate has john 19 verses 10 and 11 then pilate said to him are you not speaking to me do you not know that i have power and there is the word exousia that i have power to crucify you and power to release you jesus answered you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above therefore the one who delivers me to you has the greater sin and so pilate's exousia is something that is derived from above from god read romans 13 sometime and you will see uh, I'm just going to read the first verse, but the whole uh, first half of the chapter is very clear on this. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There's the same word. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So when God gives all authority to Christ, it includes those kinds of authorities. It's God the Father, Jesus Christ, and then these kings underneath him, and they are accountable to the Lord Jesus. Now, I hope you see uh, that this contradicts dispensational theology, which says Jesus does not receive that authority until the second coming. The New Testament uses the present tense to say all authority has been given to him. So the New Testament calls him the ruler over the kings of the earth, Revelation 1, verse 5. He calls him king of kings and lord of lords, the only potentate. First uh, Timothy 6:15, Revelation 12:5 describes the birth of Christ, saying she bore a male child, who was about to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Is Jesus at the right hand of the Father, sitting on His throne right now? Yes, He is. And First Corinthians 15:24 through 28 says that Jesus must remain at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are subdued beneath His feet. All are brought in subjection under him. And the last enemy to be subdued is death. And when is death subdued? Well, the same chapter tells us, in a twinkling of an eye, when we're caught up to be with him, it's, it's, death is swallowed up in victory at our, at our um, resurrection at the end of time. That means every other enemy is subdued to the Lord Jesus Christ prior uh, to that time. Now, that could be confusing to some, but if you think of the conquest of Canaan in the Old Testament, I think you'll have a good picture of how that all happened. All of Canaan was given to Israel before Israel cost that land. They had authority to take it, but until they took it, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't enjoy the fruits of it. They still had to possess their possessions. And because Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, we have a mandate to go possess 
those possessions. That's why the therefore is there. Go therefore. On the basis of my authority in heaven and earth, go therefore and, and disciple all nations. Okay, let's look at the second, neglected all, that uh, is in this passage, and that is that Christ commands us to disciple all the nations, not just making disciples out of a few nations. Uh, the literal Greek reads, disciple all nations. The word disciple is a verb, and nations is not in the genitive. In other words, it's not out of the nations. It's in the accusative case in the Greek, which means that the nation as a nation must be discipled. It must become a Christian nation. And a similar command was given to Joshua, only in this case it was to, he, he was commanded, dispossess all these nations. Another place he was commanded, conquer all these nations before you. And I should point out that the name Joshua and Jesus is exactly the same name. Uh, if you have a King James and you look in Hebrews 4, you'll see the discussion of Old Testament Joshua, but it uses the word Jesus. That's because Jesus is the Greek form, Joshua is the Hebrew form, but the same name. And what Hebrews does is it says that Joshua's conquest of the land of Canaan is a type of Jesus, the second Joshua, uh, and his conquest of the, of the whole world. Only Jesus is not going to use a, a physical sword. Hebrews 4 says he's going to use the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. But Hebrews 4 warns us. He says, you must have faith. Do not be unbelieving like that first wilderness generation. Why? First generation, they didn't believe the promises of God. They didn't take seriously his mandate. And so God put them on a shelf and they wandered for 40 years. And so he says, our faith, our laying claim to it is uh, very, very important. Now, let's just imagine that the Israelites thought that this was an impossible task. That'd be pretty smart because uh, it was an impossible task. I think it was just as impossible for them to conquer Canaan as it is for us to think of taking over the world. Absolutely impossible in ourselves. And so let's say that because they think that it is impossible to, to do this and all of the giants in the land and the grasshoppers of all the, the ACLU and humanism and Buddhism and all of the different things, they say, okay, he couldn't possibly mean that we actually conquer everything. So what he must mean in the Great Commission is that we need to have strategies to kill a few Girgashites here and a few hundred Hittites over there, then we'll run back into our holes and we'll pray some more for some other opportunities. And when we have finally killed a few people out of every tribe and nation in Canaan, then we can go to the Lord and say, Lord, you can come back and bail us out because we've finished our job. Now, if they did that, God would say, no, you've totally misunderstood my commission. My commission was to not only conquer, which you haven't done, but it was also to to take dominion of that land. You have not even taken the land of the few that you have killed. And so killing a few uh, here and there was not the commission. It was a total conquest. And I believe that God, through his word, is saying the same thing to those who are praying that he would come back now. He would say, no, you've got a task to do. You haven't dispossessed Satan of his territory. You haven't taken over the schools or business or the entertainment industry. Uh, you have not taught the nations to observe all things that I have told you. You have not discipled the nations yet. And yes, sure, you've made disciples of a few individuals. Praise you for that. That's wonderful. That's a good start. But I want you to engage in the conquest in such a way that you take over every aspect of America's culture just as effectively as the humanists have taken over America's culture in the last 90 years. People think, you know, it's not possible. Well, 
the humanists did it you know in 90 years they have successfully taken over every aspect of our culture they had the foresight they had the patience they had the perseverance to keep at it until finally they uh, accomplished it and i think our vision is far too small you look at the prophecies of new testament missions in the old testament and you will see constantly it's nation that keep coming up uh, even in genesis where they're cryptic uh, you find that for example in genesis 22 god tells abraham your seed and it's a reference to jesus your seed shall possess the gates of his enemies gates were places of of judgment and commerce where the king sat your seed shall possess the gates of his enemies and your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed and so i'm thrilled when people have the goal to evangelize all nations i mean that's a greater goal than a lot of people have that's fantastic but this has got to be far more than that uh, this must be a comprehensive desire to see individuals so sanctified that they are affecting culture and culture itself is gradually sanctified over time one of the reasons why we are very selective in our missions uh, approach we do support some missions that don't have this nation discipling focus but there's so few people to support those that we're specializing in our missions outreach and almost all of our outreach is going to nation discipling mission agencies and there are uh, some out there and i don't care if they're baptist i don't care if they're presbyterian or anglican it doesn't matter to me to me the issue is how aggressively are we are we taking on this mandate okay this relates to the next neglected all because it says teaching them to observe all things that i have commanded you we are not authorized to pick and to choose uh, which of jesus's commandments we will teach you know we can't say well i believe in hell but i'm not going to teach about hell because it's just too uncomfortable no we have to uh, teach uh what jesus said that he he came to save us from our sin not just to save us from hell uh, we need to teach what jesus taught about economics and management in fact jesus told them basically not in exactly these words but that they had to teach the word the whole word and nothing but the word now i want you to turn with me to matthew 5 uh, where one of these commandments of jesus respecting what we should teach has been given. matthew chapter 5 and let's begin reading at verse 17 do not think that i came to destroy the law or the prophets i did not come to destroy but to fulfill for assuredly i say to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled now, the last time i looked uh, heaven and earth hadn't passed away yet which indicates that every jot and tittle continues to be authoritative right but look at his conclusion in the next verse whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven uh, you know what the least of these commandments was in the time of jesus it was a technical phrase everybody knew what the least of these commandments was it was deuteronomy 22 verse 6 and let me read that to you because it's shocking i think in terms of its impact of what jesus was talking about here's deuteronomy 22 6 if a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs you shall not take the mother with the young you shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days you might think 
man, that is, that's so trivial. Are you sure I have to follow even things like that? I mean, sure, maybe that affects ecology, but does that affect my walk with God? And he says in Deuteronomy 22, 6, yes, it does affect your walk with God, that it may be well with you. And in Matthew chapter 5, uh, he says, yes, it does affect your walk, because he says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, doesn't say they'll lose their salvation, they're still saved, but he says, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But you know, it really does make sense. If a nation is to become a Christian nation, it's more than the civil government that's got to submit to God's laws. In fact, that wasn't a civil law. One of the mistakes that many people make, in fact, that's one of the reasons they fear civil government submitting to God's laws, is they assume that the government is responsible to impose the whole Bible. That's nonsense. Uh, they have a very limited sphere. The way you can tell what is a civil law and uh, what is a church law and what is for individuals is a civil law has civil penalties that are attached to it. And any laws that don't have a, a civil penalties attached to it is simply not a civil law. This was none of the government's business to be involved in. This was individual stewardship, and they were going to be individually accountable to God. But um, we should not think of the civil government as being, you know, what's constituted in the nation. It's only one small component of the nation. And so in this passage, Jesus is not saying that uh, he wants us to disciple civil governments. Uh, he's saying disciple the nations. He wants the free market to be running according to Scripture. He wants medical clinics, business, families, schools, farms, every aspect of a nation's uh, existence to be governed by the Scripture. And yes, the civil government is a part of that equation, but it's only a small part. Now, to me, this, this commandment of Jesus is staggering, that he would even command it, and that we can believe that this will actually be accomplished, that may take a lot of faith on the part of some individuals. It means that he was saying to these 12 disciples, I want you to not only conquer the world, I want you to take every thought into captivity to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the mandate that was given to them. In fact, it's such a bold command that for many, it's unbelievable. They reinterpret it. They say, surely Christ must have meant something else. Because the obvious surface meaning does not seem like it's even possible. Surely he must have meant something else. But uh, think about this for a moment. If Christ is presently a universal king, as he says he is, and if his kingdom is a universal kingdom, as he says that it is, then it makes sense that there is nothing short of total conquest and, and uh, uh, a total submission to the claims of his kingdom that are really worthy of his kingdom. And that leads me to the last point, the last all, and that is that to our shocked sensibilities, Lord, you can't possibly mean that we 11 are supposed to conquer the earth. Uh, he, he gives two encouragements. Number one, hey, this is going to take a long time, you know, even to the end of the age. But secondly, I'm going to be with you. And uh, let me read you the literal rendering there. Greek literally has, lo, I am with you all the days. The Greek is pasos all the days even to the end of the age and you might wonder how in the world phil can you say that this is a neglected all i think every christian believes that jesus is present with us now don't they and i would say well yes in a sense that is true but many times they act as if that makes no difference in our lives they act as if that is not true 
In fact, uh, many act as if the invisible presence of Christ is impotent unless his physical presence is with us, which is saying the presence of his divinity is impotent, but the presence of his humanity is very powerful. Let me give you a few examples. John Wolverd says, the only solution to the turmoil among nations is the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory to the earth. Now, the obvious implication is his spiritual presence is not sufficient. Wayne House and Tommy Ice say in their book, we believe the reason for this lack of success is that God has not given the church the necessary tools and graces to establish an earthly kingdom. So who's at fault here? Well, you know, we've not taken the conquest, but it's because you haven't given us enough to work with, Lord. And the Lord says, look, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I've got every resource in the entire universe at my disposal. And not only have I been given all authority, I've promised to be with you. I've promised to empower you. How can you say you don't have the necessary tools and the resources to be able to accomplish this job? Of course, we can't do it on our own, but we're not on our own. John Wolverd said, Christians have no immediate solutions to the problems of our day. A solution to this unrest and turmoil is provided in the Bible, and there is no other. That solution is that Jesus Christ himself is coming back to bring peace and rest to the world. Uh, Salem Kerbin, by the way, these are great guys, um, godly men, and I don't want to slight their godliness, but the theology, I think, takes away hope. Salem Kerbin says, without the hope of our Lord's return, what future do any of us have? And again, the implication is his physical presence is essential because his spiritual presence is not enough. Let me ask you this. Was God physically present when he uh, helped the Israelites to conquer Canaan? I would say no. His Shekinah glory was in the tabernacle where the priests were praying, and yet he still, from the Holy of Holies, miraculously directed those armies, and they were able to do conquests that would be impossible for humans on their own to be able to achieve. Well, if that is true, if his invisible presence empowered them, why can we not say that Jesus, who reigns right now from the Holy of Holies, that's where the Shekinah is, that he is directing his armies invincibly. He is moving all of history toward the goal that he has established for it. I think we ought to say that his presence is an encouragement to us. He, he, he in Hebrews 13 not only calls us to spiritual conquest, but gives the same encouragement that he gave to Joshua. He quotes Joshua. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so he is just as present now as he was with Joshua back then. Now, some might say and counter, well, if Jesus really has been given this kind of authority that you're talking about, and if he really has inherited his kingdom, then how come we don't have peace? How come we have wars and rumors of wars? How come uh, we've got so much evil in the world? How come there isn't uh, the, the, you know, the, the prosperity that we would expect in the kingdom? And I would say it's for the same reason that there wasn't instant prosperity and peace in the time of Joshua. Okay? To Joshua, he did not promise that he would do all the fighting for Joshua and they could sit back and watch it instantly happen. No. God's process has always been, as he said in Exodus, little by little, I will drive them out before you. His goal was, yes, that he would fight for them, but he would not fight without them. He would go with them. And I think this should stir us up to bold uh, action. It should give us comfort when the giants of communism and Islam and 
and New Ageism and all of the other giants make us feel as small as grasshoppers. And I tell you, sometimes they do. Sometimes it is unnerving. By ourselves, we cannot win. And it would be foolishness to think that those 12 disciples could do anything apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But because he promised to be with them, we can take the promise of Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I think that's what gives us boldness. It's his gracious presence. That was the optimism that drove Athanasius and many of the early church fathers and the, the early church members in those first four centuries so that as they were casting out demons, as, as they were affecting, getting into business and affecting various areas of culture, uh, by the time of Constantine, when the persecution stopped, and that ought to be a hint right there, that these were not rice Christians, okay? These weren't Christians who say, yeah, that might be good for my business to become a Christian or something like that. No, they thought twice about becoming a Christian because they could have been thrown to the lion. By the time of Constantine, um, secular historians have estimated that up to 50% of the Roman Empire had become Christian. That is incredible. That is unbelievable. But it reflects the faith it reflects the faith that the early church had of the con conquest that the Lord uh, could, uh, can give. And I want to ask, end by asking, who can resist the Lord if it is his will to conquer the nations with the gospel? No one. No one can resist his will. Do not believe the ten spies of the modern church. I think their words have the same discouraging impact upon the church today as the ten spies had back then. Uh, these kinds of quotes uh, really discourage. One famous Christian spy in a published work, another very godly man, by the way, said, we have reached the point of no return. We are on an irreversible course for world disaster. Okay, no return, it's irreversible, total disaster, nothing we can do about it. That's very discouraging. Another famous amillennial spy said, the world is filled with sin and getting worse and worse, a hopeless situation beyond repair and impossible to salvage. Now, it is easy to believe testimony like that. Very easy to believe it and to just feel like giving up and not doing anything. Another famous evangelical spy said, God has not given the church a proper dose of grace to Christianize the world. But what I want It's a plan that's built upon the wisdom of the Christ who knows the end from the beginning. And I want to encourage you to be Joshua's and Caleb's. Maybe the Lord has laid on your heart some ministry that he wants you to tackle. I want you to be like Caleb and say, I, I may feel weak, I may feel old, but I want to take this mountain for King Jesus. If Jesus is going forward, I don't want to be back here. I want to be where the action is. I want to be out there accomplishing something for my Lord. And that's what I encourage you guys to prayerfully ask the Lord for. Lord, what is it you want me to be involved in? This is a covenant document. All of us are subject to us. We need to ask, Lord, what is my part in the Great Commission? And as we believe it and as we spread the news about it, it's my hope that the faith of other churches, <coughs> excuse me, of other churches would be encouraged and they would rise up to spiritual arms doing battle for the Lord of hosts. And so take heart. Your efforts permissions can make a difference they can make a huge difference for the lord as by faith we take him at his word amen father god we thank you for your word 
And Father, this passage does step on our toes, but it also encourages us, and it gives us hope. And I pray that you would give to us the faith to reach out and to make a difference. Father, may we not just be theologians who believe in the greatness of the Great Commission, but Father, may we be practitioners of the Great Commission, uh, pitying this world, loving this world, enough to try to bring this world into the kingdom of light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we engage in various things, we would not do so in our own fleshly strength. Uh, we long for the presence and the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we pray, O Holy Spirit, come upon us and minister in and through us. And may what we do truly bring about lasting glory, uh, not only in our lives, but in our children, our grandchildren, and our great-great-grandchildren. We recognize, Father, that there is not going to be an overnight accomplishment of anything, uh, even in our own personal sanctification. But Father, may we not get up, give up when we see how much more it still needs to be conquered. May we instead resolve to keep on keeping on, knowing that your grace will sustain us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.